Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting across the world from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. And this is the place where technology meets entertainment. Now, the iPhone was unveiled 10 years ago yesterday. I remember it really clearly. January the 9th, 2007, Steve Jobs did a masterful job. And, you know, when you look back on it, it was more like a small, clunky, heavy brick than a phone. And it had very, very limited features. It's, and yet it was revolutionary back then. It's almost impossible now to imagine the world without smartphones. And yet at the time, despite being so simple, it was really quite extraordinary. Ten years ago... At the present site in San Francisco's um, Moscone Centre, Jobs had been practising for five days in almost absolute security. Only a very chosen few were allowed to attend and uh, Jobs was stressed and uptight as things constantly went wrong. At one point, Jobs said to the few people that were gathered in a very loud and stern voice, you are fucking up my company, and if we fail, it'll be because of you. <laughs> Way to build camaraderie, but I guess the stress was pretty heavy. Now, backstage, Apple had built an eight-by-eight-foot um, electronics lab to house and test the iPhones. Next to that, it built a green room with a sofa for jobs. It had security guards 24 hours a day on every door through the building. No one got in or got out without having his or her ID checked electronically and compared with a master list that Jobs had personally approved. And the auditorium where Jobs was rehearsing was off limits to all but three or four executives. Now, I don't know, if you think back, do you remember before the iPhone? Smartphones were big and cumbersome, half keyboard, half screen, Full websites didn't run on mobile phones, so companies were forced to build weak mobile versions of sites. But the launch on January the 9th, 2007, changed all that. And uh, the typical smartphone experience we enjoyed today has actually taken years and years and years of Apple's adding feature after feature. Now, the original iPhone ran on 2G wireless, which is painfully slow, as slow as home internet was before high-speed broadband. And to add even more pain, AT&T had an exclusivity deal with Apple and was the only carrier option. And AT&T constantly have issues like drop calls and it was unbelievable. It was very difficult. Now, beyond the touchscreen and the sleek design, the defining concept of modern smartphones is apps. And when Apple first launched the iPhone, it had no app store because of Jobs' desire to totally control the experience. Eventually, he relented, and Apple App Store set the standard for how to extend smartphone functionality. Now, the, the original iPhone had a black background, and you couldn't change it, so it was either black or nothing. And it took three years for Apple to add, cut, paste, and um, copy. Five years, three years. And for five years, the iPhone required a computer to set it up. Now, the first iPhone couldn't text messages in landscape mode, nor could it send you a picture. There were no turn-by-turn -turn direction apps. There were no Google Maps. Remember TomTom? Jeez, Tom? <laughs> oh, how primitive is that compared with what there is now? And it's not just that Apple didn't have turn-by-turn. -turn. It simply didn't let other app developers do it. 
Jobs were so paranoid about keeping control of everything. The iPhone camera was a very weak two megapixels. Photos were very blurry, not the kind of high-quality photos you expect today. It could also not take videos, which is a staple of today's cameras. There was no notification center, no Siri, no control center, and these are all complex, nuanced features that are relatively recent additions to the iPhone. And in 2007, this very primitive but cute piece of equipment cost $499 for a 4-gig model, which is over $600 in today's money. 600 bucks for that original iPhone was a lot of money, and there was no subsidised option. It's quite incredible when you think about it. The iPhone of 2007 was just a starting point, and although it's come a hell of a long way since then, it still has an awful long way to go. But there's no denying that Steve Jobs fundamentally changed our world forever. He did a remarkable invention. Now, late last year, we were talking about the explosion in automation in the restaurant industry, driving down the number of jobs you're going to see across the board. Now, the Seattle Times reports that Amazon significantly expanded its army of warehouse robots last year. You're not going to believe this, but um, Amazon has 45,000 45, robots across its 20 fulfillment centres. And that's a 50% increase from the same time in 2015 when they had 30,000 robots. Just imagine how much, how many people they'd need to replace 45,000 robots working 20 hours, 24 hours a day. So Amazon bought a robotics company called Kiva Systems in 2012 for 775 million. And Kiva's robots automate the picking and packing process at Amazon's warehouses, making the company much more efficient and much more productive. Kiva's robots can run at five miles an hour and haul packages weighing up to 700 pounds. But it's not only the 45,000 Kiva robots. Amazon also uses other types of robots in its warehouses, including large robotic arms that can move huge pallets of Amazon inventory. The company's been adding about 15,000 robots each year. And the number of robots varying from warehouse to warehouse, so there's still a hell of a lot more robots that can be added. Now, beyond the warehouse, Amazon's also looking at automating other aspects of its business. As you know, we've discussed them on this program. In December, Amazon made its first delivery by an automated drone from its from its secret prime air fulfillment center on a guarded farm at Cambridge in the UK. So moments after receiving an order, an electronically powered Amazon drone makes it down makes its way down an automatic track, picks up the parcels, then rises into the sky with a customer's package on board. Now, Amazon's autonomous drones, they're guided by GPS, of course. They can fly at 50 miles an hour, heights of up to 400 feet, and carry packages up to five pounds. So it's almost every package, and you can deliver it at 50 miles an hour, no traffic, not worrying about anything except farmers with guns who want to shoot them out of the sky. <laughs> Amazon's been testing drones in the UK much longer than had previously been thought, and they've been endorsed by the UK government, which has given the company permission to operate drones beyond the line of sight. So um, from their little secret building in Cambridge, they can deliver anywhere. Now, while we're talking about Amazon, they've partnered with Westinghouse Seeky and Element to launch 4K televisions that use its Fire TV interface. Now, these brands are all owned by the Chinese electronic company Tongfang, 
I didn't know Westinghouse was owned by Tong Fang, I've got to admit. Um, and they're going to introduce their Amazon TVs later this year at sizes ranging from 43 to 65 inches, all with a voice remote that uses Alexa, Amazon's digital assistant. So consumers will be able to talk to their TVs to search for their favourite shows. Works for me, as well as find out the weather or to order something from Amazon. So um, instead of having to go there, go into the... Um, um, guide and go through hundreds of channels. You'll just say, find me law and order or whatever it is. So that's got to be a big advancement. But this move by Amazon shows how the battle for streaming TV, it's increasingly moving away from the added-on accessories such as a set-top box and towards direct integration with your TV. Roku and Google already have similar programs in place. Now, the problem that I see for Amazon is that they're going to have all this trick stuff, right? But it's unlikely that retailers like Walmart or Target or Costco are going to be selling Amazon products. I mean, why would they go out and sell Amazon products when they hate Amazon because Amazon's eating their lunch every day? Amazon's selling all this stuff. Walmart, Target, Costco are all having their sales cut by Amazon. So why the hell would they go out and help Amazon? Seems unlikely that they will. So we'll see how that goes. Now, while we're on the subject of Amazon, it's estimated that the number of Amazon Prime memberships in the US jumped 35% last year to 54 million. It's about 46% of all US households have Amazon Prime. We don't have it at our place. I'm not sure why. Um, but US members, Prime members, spend about $1,100 a year, which is almost double what non-members spend. So Online Prime's the most widely used online membership program. It's been so successful for the company that other online retailers are now beginning to explore their own upfront fee-based programs, Google, Instacart, Sephora, Thrive Market. They've all formed some type of members-only program for online shoppers that gives consumers added benefits in exchange for an upfront annual fee. And membership programs offers retailers a number of advantages, increased spending, as I just mentioned. And once customers pay an upfront fee to a retailer, they're much more likely to keep using the service and using the service. So they will uh, realise a greater return on that initial payment. But there's challenges also for the retailers. You know, they've got to offer discounts or deliver free delivery or they've got to convince people in the first place that they should spend out 100 bucks. Um, and they're going to get something that's worthwhile back. And 100 bucks is a fair bit of, um, of free delivery. Free delivery and lower prices are the top benefits that retailers include. 74% of US consumers say that free delivery motivates them to shop more online and 50% say lower prices do. So it's interesting. The membership model is proving especially attractive for grocery delivery companies. And although Instacart doesn't break out what percentage of customers are part of its membership program, the grocery delivery startup is reportedly handling over 1 million in grocery sales a week and accounting for up to 5% of weekly sales from some whole foods outlets. So a million a week, that's a fair bit in deliveries. Now, do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We've got about 81,000 daily subscribers and it's growing all the time. It's constantly growing. And uh, so I invite you to go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and enroll for this daily newsletter. It gives you a highlight for the day. It takes just 30 seconds to read, one subject only, and it'll keep you up to date with all of the business news that's important. So you can go out to lunch with your co-workers and really sound like you know what you're talking about. Or you can meet at the water cooler and say, hey, did you know that? And, of course, they won't. And again, you look like the clever dick. So if you don't get my daily 30-second read business newsletter, go to my website, bobpritchard.com, 
and just fill in a simple form and bingo, bango, tomorrow you'll have it and you will instantly become an expert with all sorts of knowledge that you didn't have before. My guest today, Greg Vent, he's a fellow member of Metal and he first discovered the notion of sustainable development in the late 80s. Now, this is a really, really, really important subject and uh, I raise with him my thoughts that uh, I hope that the next four years are not going to ruin all the good work that's been done in generations before, but um, it's a very interesting discussion. Greg is a, uh, been a financial advisor, an economist, a certified financial planner. He's um, on major state um, boards and uh, a very, very smart guy, a lovely dude, and uh, as I said, a fellow member of Metal. And I'll be back with Greg immediately after this short break on the Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. For over the last five and a half years or so, we've given you insights into the lives of over 350 of the world's most interesting business people. We've talked about what they do, how they've overcome the challenges that they've faced, and we try to find out what it is that makes them tick. You know, it's extremely difficult to create a successful business. We're running at somewhere around 95% of new businesses fail. So we, we need to receive advice and assistance from all those entrepreneurs who have gone before us and ha- who have overcome those challenges and who have achieved success. We don't want to go out and repeat the same mistakes or make the same misjudgments that they might have made. So the aim of this interview segment is to assist you to overcome the challenges and become more successful. My guest today, Greg Went, is a Southern California native and a fellow member of Metal. And uh, he first discovered the notion of sustainable development in the late 80s. God, it seems like a long time ago, didn't it? The 80s. So since then, Greg has been passionate about applying his considerable gifts in fields of economics, business and sustainable and responsible investing. He gained a wealth of experience and expertise at Smith Barney, Dabney Resnick, which is now Imperial Capital, UBS, Prudential Securities and EP Wealth Advisors. So he's one of those really smart money guys and... uh, you know, that, having been in, an entrepreneur all my life, I've come to the conclusion that the only guys who make any money <laughs> <laughs> as entrepreneurs are the, are the money guys. Now, <laughs> Greg's now Senior Wealth Advisor heading the West Coast efforts of Stakeholders Capital, which is a boutique registered investment advisory firm specialising in impact investing and wealth management. I'm going to find out what a bit of that means Now, since 1991, Greg has worked as a financial advisor, an economist, and a certified financial planner, assisting families to align their wealth through investments that reflect their priorities and concerns for a better world. I think I understand what that means. Now, Greg's on the steering committee 
um, of the California Economic Summit and co-chair of the Capital Action Team and a member of the California Financial Opportunities Roundtable, which is a select group of experts convened by the uh, San Francisco Fed and the Obama administration to increase impact investing in California. Greg's passionate about working to improve how we do business and really concerned about the environment leaving the world in a much better place than when we came into it, which wouldn't be hard, but uh, for some reason it seems to be getting more difficult. Greg, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, which is being heard live around the world. Thank you, Bob. A pleasure to be here with you. Um, what is sustainable and responsible and impact investing? What What is that? Well, what is business as usual? Uh, what is investing as usual? And then what are we looking to do with the way that you, we were talking about? Uh, business as usual is is going forward with business activities without considering the influence that such business activities have on the greater society or the environment. Yep. And investing is investing, keeping in mind the influence business has on the greater society and the environment and doing everything we can to invest in businesses that improve the relationship between our business activities and the economy and the greater society and the environment. Very simply that. And then how it's applied is different for every single investor and every investment group. If you had a look at the um, uh, New York Stock Exchange, mm -hmm. I can't remember how many companies are listed there. I did, I did actually look it up yesterday, but I can't remember. But there's a hell of a lot. And how, yeah. how many of those companies would actually be concerned um, in the main with um, sustainable and responsible investing? You know, a lot, of them, a lot of them seem to put up this facade of, you know, we're really good guys, mm -hmm. and that's the image that they get, while at the other end they're reaping hell out of everything they can. It's good PR. Um, yeah. You know, I think there is authentic concern. Over the last 20 years, I've seen a growing interest among business leaders, you know, to incorporate what we call corporate social responsibility. Yep. Um, you know, we found over the years that businesses who pay attention to details beyond, quote, business as usual, who look at markets, who look at the environment, look at the communities they operate in, they're more efficient businesses, generally speaking. They're more attuned to what's going on, and they're more successful over time. Yeah. Um, and to look at the bigger picture, there's roughly, oh, about between 45 and $50 trillion under management and investments uh, in you know, America right now. And the U.S. Forum for Social and, and uh, Socially Responsible Investing, U.S. SIF, uh, just did a study – our, our, our biannual study, and there's just under $9 trillion, about one-fifth of the dollars under management, are incorporating environmental, social, and governance factors in the investment decision-making. Right. So it's, it's not a fringe movement. It's, you know, it's truly mainstream now. Uh, for many, uh, surprisingly, it is a new idea, and for many, like myself, it's something that's been here for 30 or 40 years. It's just what we pay attention to, and that that is the irony of our culture, as you uh, to your earlier comments about what's going on in the world. It's it, it's how do we make meaning, and what what are we paying attention to? One of the things that is attributed to Einstein's office is a quote that they that has been said, but we have, how do we verify what was in his office when? But I like the quote nonetheless, is what is often counted does not count. And what is what counts is often not counted. And sure. these are really important things to think about. You know, when we look at economic activity and uh, in economics, economics 101, we look at a business and then Everything that is considered outside of the business activities are considered externalities, uh, quality of life and communities, environmental issues, how well the employees are doing at home. These are all kinds of 
there's many, many factors that are called externalities, but in reality, are they really external to the business? Does a business really reside separate from the larger society? And does the larger society live outside of nature, the environment? And when you really observe things as they are, we, we recognize that nature, the larger biosphere, contains the larger society, which contains the economy, and they're a continuous, it's a continuous system. So people like ourselves who work in this field of investment management for a better world, we are working with what is actually happening in reality rather than what we call theory-induced blindness that somehow a business is separate from the society it runs in or economy is separate from the larger culture and the environment. Those are not true. So we want to look at the real data of being what is really going on and look at the influences every dollar that you know that our money makes. If you, if you look at um, uh, the cabinet of our new incoming president, mm-hmm. and and you look at um, um, ties to oil and gas, let's just pick one mm-hmm. portfolio there. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a massive portfolio, and mm-hmm. the. <clears throat> influence of those companies in that oil and gas area has been, in my view, extremely damaging to the planet. Mm-hmm. And so it seems to me that right at, at the moment, we seem to be putting the um, wolf in charge of the chicken coop. Mm-hmm. And, and that, was the, that was the case with the, uh, the previous administration as well, uh, with Bush administration, you know, where... And, I, and I've, you know, been feeling for some time that, to put it really bluntly, we, we are more or less in a global corporatocracy. And what I mean by that is most national governments are influenced predominantly by moneyed interests and economic activity. And it's not some conspiracy. It's just a recognition that major transnational corporations do play a meaningful role in society and governance and that we need to recognize that and to some extent what's happened in the last few months the veil has dropped to some extent where we see what is and uh you know it's a shock for many and for many of us who have been tracking on these things for years recognize well um you know the the veil has dropped and we actually have an authentic uh, maybe more, maybe more humorously, a a corporate takeover of, of of you know the halls of power in D.C. Now, having felt that for many years, well, what do we do? You know, it's not like this is a brand new development. Um, you know, you can go back to the British East India Company, who I believe it was around 500 years. You know, was or no, it wasn't wasn't 500 years, but it was a very long time that they right. they were influencing India. That was a corporation running government activity in India. So it's not like this is a brand new development that we're shocked by that business has an influence on society and governance. Well, then what do we do with this actual development where uh, you can see most wars in the last hundred years have been motivated by resources or economic activity to a great extent? Um, This is not shocking if you actually look at the data. So then what do we do again? What the question is, one, I don't know exactly what to do, but the world that we are in is looking at money drives corporate behavior. They're influenced by going to get more sales or getting more investors. Well, then if we can influence the way that money motivates corporate behavior and economic activity for government and other, other groups beyond business, if we can change the mindset through which money is driven and decision-making is made, we can actually effectively change the fuel or change the way that the fuel is used for corporate behavior and incentivize or create new, new, new meaningful, influential activity that will actually make corporations you know, move in the direction that society will benefit from in the long run. As you probably know, we have a short-term economy, namely the yep. you know quarter-to-quarter report that every publicly sure. traded company. And I, I like the example of uh, Patagonia. And this is a this is a more of a a broad kind of commentary. And I, I don't know exactly what happened, but Yvonne Chouinard, who started uh, Patagonia, the general idea is 
he committed to having only organic cotton, which was at the time very expensive. Yep. And his team said, this is too expensive. He said, I own the company, so we're doing this. Where if he was a publicly traded company, he would not be able to say that. Yep. So the way that we made the, the very structure of the way that governance and corporations is going incentivizes management to, to prioritize money and short-term interests over long-term thinking and long-term investing. Uh, so those are some of the non-environmental, non-societal dynamics that are also structural issues we need to look at and then look at how do we inspire corporations to incorporate the values that we're talking about. If you look at um, millennials, mm-hmm. um, they seem to be much more in tune with the environment and, and looking after the planet than yep. perhaps at our age we are. But I remember back when I was the equivalent of a millennial. I was concerned about the planet and I was concerned about, you know, all those things. Um, but as you get older, you seem to slip away from it. Um, I, I don't know whether it's a an acceptance of the status quo that, what the hell, you can't win, or whether it's um, we become more well, selfish or... I think it's as we get older, it's a story we tell ourselves and what our priorities are. You know, as you get older, you have a family, you need to pay the bills, you need to put food on the table, you know, then we need to find a job and all those kinds of drivers. Whereas when you're younger and and single, I think those are understandable uh, dynamics. Uh, The question is when we connect the dots between what our jobs are doing to the larger society and the larger in the environment, um, then the, the, some of those those values, you know, start start surfacing, surfacing, and I think we're we're seeing a movement here where it's evident that we can no longer continue business as usual, and we must innovate in a new way. And to your earlier question around fossil fuels and the like, you know, the the, the fossil fuel industry is in transition, and it's just a matter of time. You know, whether it be decades or centuries before we can no longer rely on pulling carbon and energy out of the earth and burning it to there's so many more interesting and effective ways to generate electricity, i.e. solar. As you know, the the, just the statistics are coming out this week. You're probably aware of that. Solar panels are now such that you'll pay back the investment costs within a year, and we're at grid parity in over, I think, over 150 to 200 countries. Namely, what that means is um, solar panels are as cheap as any other source of fuel in over 150 countries. So this is a transition that will happen regardless of what happens in D.C. and who's in charge. This is an economic driver, and we are in an economy and in in a situation where economy does override um, opinion. Um, so the question is, how do we influence economic activity to adopt the opinion of a better world for future generations rather than the short-term buck? Yeah. And these are the kinds of areas that, that are, are, are very nuanced and there's many, many layers of activity that we can discuss it, uh, over time. It seems to be, to some degree, it seems to be a, um, a pee and shell game in that you hear Tesla, and I love Tesla, but you you hear Tesla talking about a zero emission car, and then you look at everything that goes into producing your Tesla, and you find that you know there's not a whole bunch of zero emission going on here. Um, mm-hmm. So, for for every company like a Patagonia and like a um, a Starbucks and, and companies that appear to be good responsible corporate citizens, um, there seems to be another thousand that don't give a rat's ass. That is a challenge that we face, you know, and that's something that always concerns me is that no matter how good a few are, there's always those who don't care, and that becomes the overriding challenge. Yet, you know, uh, I love the the idea of... um, what Buckminster Fuller said, nothing in a caterpillar looks like a butterfly. And, you know, we have to, and also if you look at the way that a butterfly is developed out of the chrysalis, there are what are called imaginal cells. Uh, imaginal cells are cells that, are, that 
that are transformed inside the goo of the, the, the caterpillar as it transmutes into becoming a butterfly. And the first cells, as you may know, uh, spark. And they're initially attacked by the, nervous, the, the immune system of the caterpillar, and then they are embraced. So I think that this is a kind of catalytic change that we, we can't not necessarily know how change will go, but we have to continue to do the right thing. And, and the fact that one in five dollars is influencing uh, in, you know, investment decisions toward a better world, that means we're on the right track. We just have to keep going. And you know, the questions that I continue to hold is, how do we do this faster? Is this fast enough? Is this, is this enough? And that's, what, that's the kind of question that continued to drive me to innovate my business in the way that we approach things. So, <laughs> excuse me, <coughs> how did you find yourself focusing your wealth management practice in this area? Well, and you, you mentioned it briefly at the beginning of our, our, our call. Um, in the early, in the late 80s, uh, I think it was 87, 88, uh, the United Nations convened what is called, what was called the Brundtland Commission, um, which was the Commission on Environment and Development, looking at the way that we help uh, less industrialized countries become modern economies. How do we help them do that? And we have to do this kind of development in a sustainable way, was the idea that meets the needs of the current generations without compromising the needs of future generations. And I learned about that idea when uh, I was an economics student at UCLA, and it just made a lot of sense, just common sense. Um, And from that standpoint, uh, the idea of sustainable development as a driver inspired the United Nations to create a group uh, at the, the called the the Earth Summit. The first Earth Summit was in 1992. Yeah. You maybe remember that. Yeah. And we've had a series of those over the years. And I spoke at a conference uh, in 1989, uh, which was a preparation conference for the United North America to come up with all the ideas that North America will contribute to the Earth Summit. And I contributed to the creation of that document. So I really got it at that time. I'm like, this is a possibility where economic activity and my passion for environmental uh, you know, activism and, and also responsible environmental behavior, those two can be born together. And then I learned about this, this notion. And then uh, a friend of mine actually asked me to work with him at Smith Barney. And at that time, I learned about socially responsible investing. And that was in 1991. Um, and it was a very, you know, it was a new idea then. Um, and very few people even knew what the ideas were, but I began to learn and discuss as I built my business around municipal bonds and wealth management. And then in 2002, uh, it became clear that I, I really was wanting to dedicate my time solely to helping individuals who want their money aligned with their values. So I went into private practice at that time and uh, dedicated my entire business only toward uh, working with individuals and families and institutions who want uh, their money managed this way. So if you're, um, I'm trying to think of a question that compares um, general business with mm-hmm. responsible investing. Is there, is there Can you get the same similar sort of returns from responsible investing as you can through um I think if you were to look at one sector, um, to look at the overall market, right? you look at the overall stock market as compared to responsible investing. And, you know, this is a a question for any investment manager, whether they're focused on responsible investing or not. How does your strategy do compared to the market? Are you performing well? And this is the, you know, the very root of every wealth management firm and mutual fund, uh, you know, ideas of how do we beat the market? So this question arises all the time. And there's a lot of assumptions that people have is like, well, if you take certain stocks out, you're going to miss out on the overall market. Well, uh, and also, well, what what is the time frame that we're looking at? Are we looking at six months? Are we looking at a year? Are we looking at three years? It's all arbitrary. Yet, you know, for most of, you know, if not all of my clients, we're investing money for decades. And we're, you know, putting money away when people are young for their retirement or people who are in retirement that expect to live 30, 50 
years or foundations and endowments who want their money to be managed in perpetuity. So all those factors look at a long-term approach. And this is kind of like the way that Warren Buffett has, has succeeded is looking at the long term. And I look at a seven to 10 year return on investment for the managers that I evaluate to a great extent. You know, three, two, three, four years are sometimes um, uh, static, you know, but we look at returns for all those time frames. And generally speaking, the managers that I work with have a track record of doing as well or better than the overall market uh, in the time frames that we're talking about. And it has to, as a fiduciary, which it means that I manage my clients' money as if it's my own. Sure. And I'm held to that standard um, as a registered investment advisory firm. Um, the management that we, we you know, work with and that we, we work with other managers who do a lot of the stock picking and we want, we have a, a, a degree of scrutiny that we, we hold. And most of those managers have done well uh, compared to the overall market when they have incorporated these values. So the good news in, in essence, in some, it's not, a, there's not a trade-off. Um, and in every investment management group, uh, there are successful managers and unsuccessful managers and in socially responsible investing or responsible investing, we have to you know, filter out the good and bad managers as well. How much influence over the last few years has regulation had on making, forcing companies to be more um, ecologically and environmentally responsible? I don't really know the answer to that question. I don't have the data on that. But generally speaking, um, Regulation for what? I mean, that's something that's been so um, thrown around in the political discourse and the media, regulation, yet it's, you know, in the same way you can't say government, uh, there are hundreds of different government entities and there's local, state, regional, national, and international governing bodies and there's similar amount of regulatory frameworks. Um you know, that's a good question. You know, that, that I think that regulation to some extent when corp, you know, when, when business people want to make a decision, they will just make a decision that prioritizes the bottom line and people that are committed to what we call the triple bottom line, people, planet, and profit, make decisions where we incorporate those factors and we feel those are better businesses uh, in the marketplace regardless. So... It, it, you know, then I think regulation does play a role there. And the question, I, I guess the short answer is I don't know, but and we do, do know that it plays a role. But many of us were becoming, you know, encouraged by what appeared to be a, a heightened degree of consciousness of the planet and people's rights among the business community. But to me, we seem to have taken a giant step back and we're going to a me 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 attitude and and uh, all you hear from the from government is uh, we're going to roll back all the regulations we're going to you know we're going to um, take the take the teeth out of the um, environmental protection agency we're going to you know so are we just encouraging corporations to go back to the good old days yeah, I wouldn't call it that. <laughs> uh, good old days when uh, you know, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, so let's, bad, old, bad old days, I guess. I mean, or just uh, when you know, all we need to do is look back at uh, um, you know the, the the birth the birth pangs of the industrial revolution and the kinds of the kinds of uh, issues that brought about um, the need for, you know, putting some kind of boundaries around the way we do business for the yeah. sake of the well-being of society and people. And, you know, when you look back at, you know, the, the, you know, the fact that there were rivers on fire because of the toxins and, and pollution in them and what's happening in Flint, Michigan or, you know, Fukushima, um, it's pretty obvious, you know, to anybody who's, you know, uh, you know, not does not have their head in the sand that we have to watch out because no one wants uh, a fire in their river or a forest cut down in their backyard or a nuclear waste dump or a nuclear explosion in their in their neighborhood. So it's 
pretty clear, but I guess one one of the things that always is a question for me is how is it that such people that that do not do not support this kind of responsible behavior, um, how is it that they're thinking that it will not happen in my backyard? You know that we're not exempt from you know the the air and the water. Um, we might have our gated communities and our privileged homes, you know, which I feel like I'm living in such an, an, an environment. The question is, you know, are we really separate from the rest of the system? Can we actually separate ourselves? And, and no, we cannot. And, and that's something that means we have to look at how do we address reality and navigate according to what is. And, you know, it's clear that the system that we're in is not working. And, and for many decades, it's become clear to me and you know, the people that I work with um, and the think tanks and the governing bodies, the policy groups and the investors that I work with, you know, we, we're, we're really clear that the system was not designed to solve today's problems. We must reinvent the system. Yet, to just tear down the system and uh, leave nothing in in. in in, in its place is not necessarily a way to govern. I've had a number of conversations with people. Well, if we take government out of the equation, who's going to address the problems that business is not designed to solve? Right. And this is the issues of the commons. How do we address the commons? And I think that's where it comes down to this notion of what is meaningful, what actually counts, and some deep questions have to be asked about our hypothesis, about our, 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 our way of seeing the world and humanity and ourselves. And it's, you know, it comes down to, are we all, is everything connected in an entire system or can we separate things? And I think that idea of separation is actually just a false premise. And I'm actually optimistic for the long-term uh, prospects of humanity because people will eventually wake up that it's all connected and we have to to manage ourselves and govern ourselves responsibly, which includes reinventing the system that was not designed for the problems that we have today. Um, it's just a matter of how do we go about it. Yeah. We seem to be encouraging, like Flint, Michigan, for example. Mm-hmm. Now, we have a water problem. Mm-hmm. It's taken forever to do anything about it. They're still not doing anything about it. Nobody's mm-hmm. really paid the price for that, and mm-hmm. I'm sure it's happening in hundreds of other communities. And they're all saying, "Well, you know, with a bit of luck, we won't get caught." And it's, isn't that similar thing that happened with Enron and a whole bunch of others? That you know, I can drink and drive because I'm all right. Somebody else is going to get killed, isn't that? Yeah, I think there's some there's an overriding overarching, you know. A, you know, presumption that my activity and my benefit from my activity is separate from the welfare of the overarching society of the commons of the of the the very society that I'm in. Yeah. And you know, the question is, how long will that last? And many people think, well, if as long as long as I can get away with it, uh, and I can get my stuff and run away and ha- hide in my little, you know, palace, then I'll be okay and, you know, screw the rest of the world. Well, that's been the me, you know, discussion. Yet, uh, it, this stuff does come home to roost. And, the, you know, to a great extent, you know, Flint Mission, again, is a perfect example. And how do we actually address that? Well, it's about rolling up our sleeves and recognizing that we're all in this together and we have to make decisions for here and get things done for us. Yeah. And and this is the spirit that the California Economic Summit has with a bipartisan group of people uh, coming together to say we are managing this state with a recognition that we're all here together and we're in this together. So we have to figure it out together in a bipartisan way. And this is something that I feel is a model for the way we can govern the world. And, um, and I'm, I'm committed to, to showing the example here, which is why I love the work that I do, which incorporates business interests and civic society interests 
at the same time as investors who have a financial stake in the benefits of, of both business and society. So I think this is, um, these are the kind of directions I think, you know, were we to have a lot more time, I would be saying there is a way. It right. just has to be, we just have to have the intention to recognize and not keep our head in the ground. California is an interesting example because um, um, while we talk about bipartisan groups in California, um, we're really talking about, uh, in one way or another, a whole bunch of Democrats, aren't we? I mean, compared with, say, Kansas or Ohio or Mississippi or wherever where um, the the two sides are poles apart. So who are you most inspired by? Who is it that... Let you feel oh, good question. Um, I'm inspired by business leaders who who see the possibility that we are in this. To, you know, the reality that we're in this together, and the possibility that we can figure this all out. I mean, you know, people like Richard Branson. He comes to mind as someone who is a is a is a pragmatic visionary, right? Who has demonstrated success by combining his values with, you know, a successful business. And the notion of a trade-off is is a false reality. It's absolutely an illusion. And and that's the beautiful opportunity to to be inspired by people like that. And and also I, I'm inspired by what California has done. You know, the whole idea of um, the way that our state works is one of the most successful economies on the planet, and uh, so many things that people who 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 believe that there are, there are trade offs. This is a living laboratory to prove otherwise, and um, that we can succeed in a low carbon and uh, an energy efficient economy and thrive. Um, you know, for people, you know, with the way that we run the state. So I think this is like why, again, I'm continuing to be very encouraged by the way California can lead the way and show how uh, how things can be done to integrate these these priorities together in a cohesive civilization. Greg, thanks very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now you can mo- learn more about Greg Went at Greg Went. G-R-E-G-W-E-N-D-T dot com. You can look it up on my on my website at, after today and uh, you'll be able to find the contacts. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and Voice America Business Network after this short break. Listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to Bob at BobPritchard.com. That's Bob at BobPritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Channel. And we're the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. This week, broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles where technology meets entertainment. CES, how huge is it? People from 81% of countries in the world, 5,700 media, which is 1,700 more than the Olympics, 33,000 corporate buyers, which is 11 times the number of companies on the New York Stock Exchange, 200,000 attendees, 4,000 exhibitors, etc. Now, Tom... Autonomous vehicles, wafer-thin TVs, drones, 3D printers, add-on lenses, telehealth, you name it, it was all there. But it was Amazon's Alexa, the personal assistant that launched with the Amazon Echo Smart Speaker, that overshadowed this year's CES. Major companies, as well as a long parade of startups, all unveiled home appliances, phones, cars, and a plethora of gadgets with Alexa integration. It's an indication of the um, influence that Amazon's beginning to have on a burgeoning 
smart home market as a growing number of people come to rely on their Echo devices to run their homes and to automate their lives. The market for the Echo is growing very fast. Google's had the Google Home voice-enabled speaker designed to compete with the Amazon Echo. Microsoft and Harman have the Cortana virtual assistant smart speaker and Apple's working on a dedicated Siri speaker. But so far, Amazon's the smart speaker to beat with an early start and lots of buzz. More importantly, the rise of Echo heralds a changing tech landscape. The question could come down to how many retailers, online and offline, are willing to sell Amazon products as Amazon continues to eat their lunch online. However, no matter how many Google Home devices the search giant sells, Amazon has made a formidable impact on the market. After years of iPhone users getting let down by Siri, the first mainstream voice agent, um, Amazon billed the Echo as a speaker that, by the way, has got a few smart voice commands. However, the reality is that people started getting used to it. They added more and more. They got positive word of mouth. They added more and more capabilities. Alexa now boasts hundreds and thousands of skills that allow it to connect with apps like Uber, Twitter, and Bloomberg News. So that's helped Alexa and the Echo Speaker earn a position as the central hub in so-called smart homes. Alexa's voice-first interface is the perfect way to manage internet-connected lights, door locks, thermostats. It's way more intuitive than having to constantly pull out a tablet or a phone. 85% of Echo owners have used it to set a timer, 82% to play a song, 62% to read the news, 64% to set an alarm, 62% to set the time, 46% to control smart lights, 45% to add items to a shopping list, 32% to buy something on Amazon Prime, etc., etc. The Echo makes it super, super easy to buy stuff, especially stuff from Amazon. Alexa can play music from streaming servers like Spotify but it defaults to using Amazon's own Prime Music, which is a pretty key feature for a smart f speaker. And it's yet another reason for consumers to get a $99 a year Amazon Prime subscription, which also gets you free shipping from Amazon, which encourages to buy more stuff. So um, that slick voice interface for skills and for controlling all of your smartphone uh, smart home gear ensures that you're always using Echo and Alexa. So I don't know whether you saw the Golden Globes, but it's not surprising that Jeff Bezos was grinning from ear to ear at the Golden Globes. He's got the market cornered. Um, let's have a quick look at uh, 2016 top startups and how much they, they attracted in investment. And let's think about how they'll survive. Grail, which is an early stage blood test for any sort of cancer. Um, it's a DNA sequencing technology measures circulating nuclear acids to develop a universal cancer screening test and uh, funding 100 million. I think that's a winner. Lemonade is a new form of insurance that sells rental insurance policies from five bucks a month and home insurance for uh, 35 bucks a month, totally online. Um, Raised 60 million, a lot of competition in that area. I'm not so sure about that. Cheddar, process, presenting and processing business news for millennials. You know, short clips of interviews and general business information to have um, with news tailored to millennials' interests. Raised 13 million bucks. I think that's a bit dodgy. Pearl which is Apple engineers turning your old car into a high-tech model. So there's all this stuff you can put onto your old car to make it um, high-tech. They were funded to the tune of $50 million, and I think that's a bit dodgy too. Starry, which is more powerful Wi-Fi for your house. Now, this is the one. For 350 bucks. you can um, hook up a uh, wireless receiver, tell you right from the screen how fast your internet's performing, give you much faster uh, internet. Funding 30 million winner. So I invite you to go to my website, bobpritchard.com. 
enroll for my daily newsletter. It takes just 30 seconds to read. Go to my website and enroll. Uh, it'll keep you posted with all the business news that's important. It'll make you sound like an expert. And it only takes you 30 seconds to read. On the odd occasions, there'll be a more substantial article, but I warn you first. So remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up way, way, way too much space. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. And next week, we'll be back broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard, where technology meets entertainment. We're right in the middle of Hollywood, and I hope you can join me again. In the meanwhile, please continue to be successful because the alternative really sucks. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life. 